Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Psalm 116, uh, which we read just a few moments ago. Here at the end of 2020, I thought it would be fitting for us to consider the Psalm of Thanksgiving, because the psalmist thanks God for bringing him through distress and anguish into restful rejoicing. And he invites us, the psalmist invites us, even here at the end of a difficult year, he invites us into his joy, trusting that what the Lord did for him, the Lord does for all of his people. The the structure of this psalm itself actually leads us on something of a journey up a mountain and then back down again. And so we're we're actually going to follow the path by asking four questions uh, to help us discover in the center of it all, at the peak of this mountain, a reason for deep hope that transforms even the here and now. And here are those questions. First, when? When should you call on the Lord? Second, why? Why should you call on the Lord? Third, What does it even mean to call on the Lord? What does it mean to call on the Lord? And finally, once you've called on Him, then how? How do you walk before Him day after day? As we start on this journey, though, as we follow the psalmist through his distress into thanksgiving, It's actually vital for us to see that we're not only following Him, we're actually following the Lord Jesus Himself. Though written hundreds, really even thousands of years before His birth, there is a sense in which all of the Psalms are actually Jesus' songs. In His full divinity, Jesus is the object of our worship. These songs are sung to Him. They're sung about Him. And at the same time, in Jesus' full humanity, Jesus is the true singer of these songs. He is the chief worshiper among God's people, leading us forward in praise. As He is the one who has truly suffered death, and yet walks, to use the language of verse 9, walks before the Lord in the land of the living. In this song, we can hear Jesus publicly celebrating His Father's faithfulness to Him. And so let's follow Him on this journey and start by considering this question of when, when should you call on the Lord? The the concept of calling on the Lord appears throughout this psalm. The phrase itself actually appears in verses 2 and 4 and 13 and 17. But there's actually two radically different contexts for the psalmist calling out on the Lord, calling on the Lord. In verse 4, he calls on the Lord when he's in trouble. He calls out, Lord, I pray, I beseech you, I beg you, Deliver my soul. That is, deliver my whole person. The the Hebrews didn't have the kind of Greek concept of soul-body distinction. He's talking about his whole person here. Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. But in verse 17, he calls out again 
after the Lord had rescued him out of his trouble. Now, we're going to talk about his trouble and ours in a moment, but hearing him pray in trouble and after rescue teaches us an important truth. We must pray not only for help, we should pray, but we should also pray in thanksgiving, which is what the psalm is really all about. We so easily call out to God when we're in trouble, but once it passes, we tend to move on to whatever is next, whatever feels pressing on us. We do that without acknowledging how the Lord has carried us through that first thing that we were asking for. Forgetfulness and distraction are the enemies of thanksgiving. And so let's not be those who cry out for help, but then take him for granted after he helps. For you who remember how the Lord has heard you, remember also to give him thanks. That's the life that we see in Jesus. On the cross, Jesus cried out to the Lord. He called on the Lord saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But after, in Hebrews 2, we hear the resurrected Lord calling on the Lord again in thanksgiving. The resurrected Jesus says, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, he says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is Jesus standing as the chief worshiper among us, his redeemed brothers and sisters. He remembers his father's faithfulness. He praises the Father for bringing him through his suffering into eternal life. And so like the psalmist, this makes Jesus a live-bodied testimony to God's trustworthiness. He's a flesh and blood witness that the Lord rescues those who call on him in faith. Maybe you are in a place of distress or anguish today. That means today is the day for you to call on Him who hears the pleas of His people. Or maybe, maybe you see how the Lord has carried you through this difficult year. Maybe you're remembering past prayers that he, for help and you now see reason for thanksgiving because those prayers, in part at least, have been answered. If so, then let's cultivate thanksgiving intentionally by remembering how the Lord heard our calls for help and mercy and He came. To our aid. Remembering this, we can say with the psalmist in verse 2 I will call upon him as long as I live. Whether we're safe, whether we're in trouble or we're safe on the other side of it, we ought to live with our voices lifted up to the Lord. Our need to remember, though, our need to remember what he saved us from, and I would say what he saved us to, that actually leads us to the second question. Why? Why should you call on the Lord? 
Well, just as there were two times to call on him, there were also two reasons for calling on the Lord. The first reason is pretty simple. It's because we are powerless. But the second is kind of like it. We call on the Lord because he is the savior of powerless people. We, we all encounter things against which we are powerless. Look at verse 3. The psalmist found himself in some deadly situation. We don't know the details, but he was feeling the pain of life in this fallen world. Like an animal caught by the paw in a hunter's snare. He felt the wild-eyed distress. Maybe he felt the frailty of sickness and he was close to death. Or maybe he felt the sting of betrayal. Verse 11 seems to suggest that his anguish, his alarm, are caused by human deception. He says all mankind are liars. Or maybe it's as St. Augustine says, he is feeling the pains that none of us would have experienced if we had not wandered from the Lord in the first place. Lost sons leaving the safety and love of the Father only to find the wide world that we thought held such promise cold and wearisome and dangerous. Whatever the reason for his distress, when he says in verse 6, that the Lord preserves the simple. He is talking about people who cannot take care of themselves. He's talking about himself. Whether he trusted the wrong person or he's simply feeling the frailty of humanity, he's recognizing his powerlessness. And oh, that you and I would feel, really feel that powerlessness too and feel it continually. Because knowing your need of grace is actually the beginning of grace. We may feel our weakness, and the pain of that makes us cry out. But as Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And comfort we find in the Lord. Because once we know ourselves in our weakness, we will look to Him who is the Savior of powerless people. Look and compare verse 3 to verse 16. In verse 3, we saw that he's surrounded by the snares of death. He's trapped by bonds that are too strong for him to break. But in verse 16, he stands as a servant of the Lord, before the Lord, totally freed and yet freely serving because the Lord has loosed his bonds. The Lord saved him. Well, see, in just a moment, he saved him because that's who he is. That's what he does. But verse 16 is showing us his power to rescue his people. He does this so often in the here and now. And we know that he will do this ultimately in the world to come. Because as we see in verse 15... Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. One commentator said, this verse is assuring us that the Lord is not indifferent to whether or not his faithful servants are killed. 
The death of one of his servants, one of his people, is something that is precious to him. It is weighty with value. And he does not let his people die for no reason. And if they do die, then they do not die in spite of his power. And they do not die apart from his love. Nowhere, nowhere do we see that clearer than in the death of our Lord Jesus. Is it comforting to you to remember that Jesus felt the frailty of our humanity? He who could have called down angels to defend him, willingly emptied himself, gave himself up to the powers of darkness. Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed by a man. He knows the pain of being lied to. And he knows what the snares of death feel like. He knows what it means to be in distress and anguish and have to totally entrust himself to the Father. As another writer said, in becoming incarnate God, in becoming incarnate, God not only accommodates himself to human weakness, he buries his glory under veil after veil so that it is impossible for flesh and blood to recognize him as God. As he hangs on the cross, bleeding, battered, powerless, and forsaken, the last thing he looks like is God. Indeed, he scarcely looks human. He looks like nothing but a hell-bound, hell-deserving derelict. Everything about him says an atheist and a blasphemer. At last, his true identity was even obscured from himself. We should notice, too, that the kenosis, that is Jesus emptying himself in the words of Philippians 2, his emptying of himself involves the willingness to go ever lower. Behind it, there lay two great decisions. The first, before time, was the decision of the eternal Son to assume the form of a servant and the likeness of men. But the second decision was made when he was incarnate. And that was his decision to humble himself even further. And so from this point of view, the humiliation of Christ was not a point, but rather it was a line. Its single greatest step was that by which he became the child in the manger. The condescension involved in that is beyond imagining. And yet it was only the beginning of Jesus' long downward journey through homelessness, poverty, exhaustion, shame, and pain to Gethsemane, and beyond that to Calvary. And even then, Calvary was not a point, but rather a continued line. From the third to the sixth hour of his agony, uh, it was one of relative serenity, punctuated by the threefold choruses of derision from passers-by, the scribes and the Pharisees and those crucified with him. But from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness, possibly symbolic of the darkness that was in the Savior's own soul, or alternatively, pointing to the fact that the light was almost extinguished by its struggle with the darkness. And then at the ninth hour came the cry of dereliction. Jesus crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When there was nothing 
but darkness and emptiness, no hearing, no loving, no withness. He was alone with the world's sin and with God, experiencing the presence of the holy as a dreadful forsakenness. But then after that dereliction, after he called out to God in his pain, the dereliction ceased. The curve no longer moved downward, but upwards. The humiliation passing imperceptibly into exaltation. As he died, the dawn was already breaking. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In Jesus we see a willingness to cast himself unreservedly on the love and the care of his Father. In descending into that abyss, the servant, Jesus, was renouncing control over his own destiny. He made himself nothing. And from, the point of view, uh, from this point of view, the obedience of Jesus in his incarnation and in his crucifixion, it involves breathtaking risk. He puts his destiny wholly in the hands of the Father and is willing to die unrecognized, disgraced, accursed. The psalmist and your Lord himself shows you that it's okay. It's okay to be powerless. You don't have to pretend that you're not. You don't have to keep exhausting yourself, grasping for the control that you'll never actually have. And you don't have to take revenge on the people who hurt you. You don't have to fight back because the Lord himself is the Savior of powerless people. So don't be afraid. And don't hesitate to entrust yourself to him who never wastes the life of his servants. Just as the life and death of Jesus were purposeful and fruitful, the seed falling to the ground yet producing a harvest of redeemed people, you too can rest in the Lord's power and His love for you. Because He uses His infinite power on behalf of those who rely on Him. But to rely on somebody, you really have to know that you can trust them. You need to know what they're like. And the next step of our journey addresses that as the psalmist shows us what it looks like to call on the name of the Lord. This answers our third question. What does it mean to call on the Lord? Again, there are two parts to notice. First, calling on the Lord involves acknowledging His character. And second, it involves responding to His grace. In verse 5, look there. The psalmist revels in the character of the Lord. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. He is gracious because He is always giving people what they don't deserve. He is righteous because He is always doing what is right. His faithfulness to His promises and His people seem to be what's highlighted here. He is merciful. Literally, He is compassionate. 
because he sees us in our pain, even the pain that we have brought on ourselves by our sin. He sees us and he moves toward us with warm gentleness. We've seen the character of God on display all throughout the story of redemption. We see his grace in giving his great promises to a cheating liar like Jacob. We see his righteousness in redeeming Israel from Egypt, just like he had promised to Abraham. We see his compassion toward his wayward people as he led them back from exile, even after they broke covenant with him again and again and again. The Lord's character is everywhere on display. But we see his righteousness and his compassion and his grace most fully revealed in the person of Jesus, his son. We see Jesus moved with compassion outside the small town of Nain when he sees a widow about to bury her son. He sees her in a crowd of people, and those who were with him must have seen Jesus' warm compassion written on his face and embodied as he moves toward her to rescue her from her living death. We see his righteousness in the life that he lived, setting right the things that were wrong in this world, teaching us what it means to love God and love our neighbors, showing us the beauty of life in God's kingdom. We see his righteousness, too, as he willingly suffers on the cross, standing in the place of sinners to satisfy the wrath of God. And we see his grace as he gives us what we do not deserve. Forgiveness by his blood and a place at his table. Knowing and trusting the character of God is what actually enables us to call on him in the first place. His character, who he is, is, it gives us the hope that we need to cry out in our pain. Knowing him just a little puts enough courage into our hearts to lift up our voices for help. But beyond that initial cry, if you embrace this gracious God through Jesus, his son, if you know him to be righteous and compassionate and gracious, then to call on him must also draw out some other response from you. We see that in the psalmist in verses 12 through 14. He's considering what kind of response is appropriate in light of all that the Lord has done for him. This is him not only remembering, but also responding to the salvation that the Lord has worked for him. He says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Literally and figuratively, he is going to enjoy his God and drink deeply of his salvation. He's raising a glass in thanksgiving to God, knowing that the Lord is most glorified in us when he is most enjoyed by us. But his response runs deeper still. Look at verse 14. He speaks of publicly paying his vows to the Lord. Now, this isn't something that we do too terribly often, making promises to God and then delivering on those promises. 
but maybe it's something we should consider. As another writer explains, vows that are undertaken in a time of trouble were not bargains with God. God, if you get me out of this mess, I promise I will be in church on Sunday. It's not like that. These vows were evidence of a serious intent to learn from the experience and to emerge from it a better and more dedicated person. This public act of worship was actually meant to honor God and, and also strengthen the faith of others, showing them that they too can trust the Lord to carry them through their trials and rescue them from their distresses. He's publicly responding to what the Lord has done for him. But what he says to others, did you notice he also has to say it again to himself? Look at verse 7. He encourages others to rest in the Lord, but in verse 7 he speaks to his own soul. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You and I often joke about talking to ourselves being a symptom of insanity, but here, talking to yourself actually keeps you sane. Because you're grounding yourself in the reality of your redemption. You're grounding yourself in the reality of God Himself. This, this private and this public response to the grace of God for who He is and for what He's done for us in Christ, it honestly it makes me want to have a huge party. I mean a big blowout kind of party. And I know that because of the pandemic, we are not ready for that yet. But I think maybe we should start planning something for the summer when each of us can take turns raising a glass in public thanks, giving thanks to our God for all that He has done for us. But you don't really have to wait for the summer to begin living this kind of life. This impulse to live in a way that celebrates what God has done is something for today and every day. And that actually leads us to our final question, one that we have to answer all too briefly. Finally, if He has delivered you, then how? How do you walk before the Lord today? Look at verses 8 through 11. These verses form the heart of this psalm. These are actually the high point that the psalmist was leading us toward on this journey. And they show us how God's people are always, always walking by faith. He says in verse 10, I believed. He says, I believed. And this profession of faith stands, in, in the words of another, it stands at the midpoint between new life enjoyed and old life endured. In this new life, he knows that the Lord has delivered my soul, that is, my whole person, from death. He's delivered my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. That, that's not to say that he'll never die, never grieve again, never sin again, never struggle again. But he is saying that even if life brings more sorrow, even if human beings continue to display their deceptive nature, even so... He will journey on in the comfort and security of one who walks, who lives before the Lord. 
even if he again walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he walks in the confidence that he will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. This is the very confidence that we see in Jesus, who was delivered from death, not by escaping it, but by passing through it. And this is the same confidence that we can have because of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection for us. As we cling to him, you and I can say, you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And we can say these things even as we face the grimness of this life, the life on this side of the Lord's return. As one writer said, to face the grimness of life with dismay and to say so is not a failure of faith, but an evidence of it. We see the wrong that still persists in this life, in us, and we name it as wrong. But we also see past it. We aren't consumed by it. We see past it to the Lord who stands above it and who always hears us when we call. This all makes me remember a season in life when for about two whole months I must have called Doug every single day. I was going through the most difficult season of my life up to this point. Things totally outside of my control pressed in on me. I, I felt powerless all the time. And when I did not know which way was up, I called Doug. Doug was a fellow pastor, and he always took my call. Maybe once or twice I had to leave a message, but he always called back. And I love Doug for that. Like I told the kids, we love the people who listen to us, who really hear us, who really help us. And that's why the psalmist burst open from the start of the psalm with, I love the Lord. And it's the same for us. We have been through a tough year. We have struggled with loneliness We've struggled to homeschool, to figure out work, to figure out church. We've buried loved ones. We buried our brother here, Brent. We are still living in a tremendously uncertain world. But the Lord has brought us through to today. Because we have seen the grace of God in the face of Jesus, we know and believe that we will now and we will still walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And so today and every day, we can walk by faith. We can keep going with our eyes on Him and we can say with the psalmist, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God who hears. The God who not only heard, but who came to us yourself to rescue us from death by death. And to bring us into life. You, O oh Lord, 
in your Son, you have delivered our souls. You have rescued us so that we can walk without stumbling. And you are drying our eyes, Father. We look forward to the day when you will do that completely, when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But we trust that the work of redemption that you began in Christ, you will finish. Only help us walk by faith while we wait. We pray this in the name of our Lord and for his sake. Amen.